Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are nice entertainment. Here are the reasons for the wrong place. None of the Robins ever complained. You're going to melt just like a cheese sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. With me as always is my co-host... Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nico and I cover episodes of Supergirl, The Flash, Arrow, and DC's Legend of Tomorrow. But no Gotham this week, as it is, again, still on its long winter hiatus until April. But before we go and kick things off with Supergirl, let's first head over to our News with Nico DC headline section. Shazam film might have found director. On a positive note, Warner Brothers' Shazam movie may have found a director in Lights Out director David S. Sandberg, who's also directing August's Annabelle 2. While I can't think of two projects more different than Lights Out and Shazam, which centers on the most childlike of all DC superheroes since he is quite literally a boy in the body of the world's mightiest mortal man, I'm willing to give the studio the benefit of the doubt, though I'm still dreading the thought that I'll have to hear characters on screen referred to the good Captain Marvel as Shazam, as DC Comics have done in recent years. Marvel, of course, has its own very different Captain Marvel movie on the way and holds the copyright on the name when it's used in a title. As we all know, Shazam is what Billy Batson yells when he turns into and out of Captain Marvel, but it was not until 2011 that the character was officially renamed Shazam, which sometimes gives me terrible flashbacks to Shaq's Kazam nightmare film. Ratings. Arrow dips to new lows. The CW's Arrow this Wednesday drew 1.54 million total viewers and a 0.5 demo rating, dipping on both counts to mark serious lows. Really not good news for Arrow. The CW wants to do a true force show crossover next season. There's nothing the CW loves more than its annual crossovers within its DC Comics properties. But if you were one of the fans who felt a little cheated by last fall's Invasion story, which was advertised as a force show crossover, but in actuality was a three show crossover featuring Supergirl, then we've got good news for you. The producers are already hard at work laying out the logistics for next season and an honest to goodness force show crossover is on their wish list. Executive producer Andrew Kreisberg revealed to a small group of press during a Supergirl screening on Friday that next year we're hoping to do a true four-way crossover. The great thing about our dear friends at the CW and Mark Pedowitz picking up the shows as early as they did, it has allowed us to start building the schedules for next season. This extra planning will hopefully allow the network's current superhero series, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow, to be able to better accommodate filming. So there you have it. While it's not an official announcement by any means they are at least trying to craft a real four-show crossover. So that's something. 
Lego Batman movie director in talks to make live action Nightwing film. The Lego Batman movie director, Chris McKay, said that he had a meeting with Jeff Johns about directing a live action DC Comics film, and it looks like things went well. The Hollywood Reporter says that McKay is currently in talks to direct a live action Nightwing movie for Warner Brothers. Bill Dubuque, who wrote the Ben Affleck movie The Accountant, is writing the script. After this news broke, McKay retweeted several tweets about it on Twitter, confirming that the talks are ongoing. That sounds awesome. So that brings the question, if Ben Affleck retires as Batman, is Nightwing the backup plan? The Batman has a director again. Mere days after reports indicated that negotiations had broken down, Matt Reeves has officially been hired to direct and produce the next solo Batman film, which we'll discuss in a moment. That would have been a big story in and of itself had Warner Brothers not followed that up with a press release that conspicuously left Ben Affleck's name off of it. Look, everyone makes mistakes, but that was clearly an intentional move that only feeds the rumors that Batfleck is already looking to escape the entire DC Extended Universe. It's no coincidence that the Batman announcement was soon followed by news that Nightwing is about to get his own solo movie as well. For you non-comic book fans out there, Dick Grayson, the original Robin, went on to become Nightwing in the comics, and he's even had a few stints as Batman as well. Could that happen on the big screen as well? The guys over at Nerdist think that it's entirely possible. Consider this. Affleck's Dark Knight was in introduced as a man in his 40s or 50s during the events of Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. He's Batman, but he's not a young man. It's far more likely that this Batman could be close to the end of his time under the cowl, and while Batman vs. Superman established that Robin is dead in this universe, it never said which Robin died. That means Dick Grayson's Nightwing can easily be added to the DC Extended Universe. Sorry, Jason Todd. You're probably out of luck. Potentially, the Nightwing movie could be used to give Dick Grayson a a big introduction to a new generation of fans who would then follow him over to the Bat franchise as he potentially takes over for Bruce Wayne. But the real question is whether the public is willing to accept anyone other than Bruce Wayne as Batman. If nothing else, Grayson could sub into the role for a movie or two and leave room for Batman to return with a new actor as Bruce Wayne. Again, this is just speculation at this point as there has been no solid word on whether or not Affleck is quitting as Batman, but it makes sense that DC would have a backup plan. Black Lightning, Cress Williams to star in CW's latest DC Comics pilot. A CW vet is coming home to serve up electric justice. Cress Williams, who starred in Heart of Dixie from 2011 to 2015, has landed the title role in the network's newest DC Comics pilot, Black Lightning. Williams' character, a retired superhero named Jefferson Pierce, finds himself back in vigilante mode thanks to his justice-seeking daughter and the threat of a star student being recruited by a local gang. In addition to his work on Heart of Dixie, Williams' small screen credits in include a role on Beverly Hills 90210, ER, Veronica Mars, Grey's Anatomy, and Prison Break. Matt Reeves is directing the Batman after all. Yes, I too have been starting to feel like a yo-yo regarding news on The Dark Knight's next director. For those keeping track at home, Ben Affleck was originally slated to direct the film, then he dropped out, preferring to star in the project. Then War of the Planet of the Apes director Matt Reeves was in the running, and then he too was said to have dropped out of negotiations. But now we hear that Reeves will in fact direct Affleck in his first solo turn as Gotham City's savior. How do we know this? Because Warner Brothers itself has announced it. Quote, I have loved the Batman story since I was a child, says Reeves in an official statement from the studio. He is such an iconic and compelling character and one that resonates with me deeply. I am incredibly honored and excited to be working with Warner Brothers to bring an epic and emotional take on the caped crusader to the big screen. Say what you want about Reeves' work. It always has heart, and heart is 
is the biggest thing that's been missing in the DC Extended Universe since Zack Snyder launched it with 2013's Man of Steel. I say best of luck, Mr. Reeves. Hopefully he can turn around the disaster that has been the DC Extended Universe up to this point. And that's the news with Nico, DC Headlines, for this week. Okay, now we're going to jump into a Supergirl episode that I think we're going to have a little bit of a mixed reaction to as we jump into our discussion of Mr. and Mrs. Mitzelpicking. A magical imp named Mr. Mixilpitalik shows up on Earth and declares his love for Kara, who tries to let him down easy. However, he won't take no for an answer and starts to wreak havoc on National City. As Monel and Kara argue over how to get rid of Mixilpitalik, Alex and Maggie celebrate their first Valentine's Day together. Michael, we both were intrigued by last week's closing moments when Mr. Mixilpitalik showed up and the previews we saw, and we even suggested that he might serve a similar role as the trickster on Supernatural and we actually got pretty excited by that possibility. Unfortunately, for me anyway, it did not live up to the awesomeness of Supernatural's Mystery Spot or Changing Channels episodes, two of my favorite non-mythology episodes of that entire Supernatural series. Now, while most of the Mixie story was really well done and solid storytelling this week, it just didn't have that same feel or uniqueness that those episodes brought to Supernatural at the time. Maybe part of the problem with this episode was that there was no mystery. We knew that Mixie was behind everything from the very beginning, even before since he was introduced at the end of last episode. For example, what if they had done a takeoff of the mystery spot with Mixie attempting to woo Kara and after each failure he would reset the day and try again employing a new strategy and only Monel, because of his previous experience with the fifth dimensional character was was the only one that realized that they were in a time loop. That would have still allowed for the conflict and resolution of the episode to play out similarly despite that being one of the worst aspects of the episode for me but we'll talk about that in a moment so michael what did you think of the mixy episode did it work or was it missing something to make it special also what do you think of my suggestion to possibly make it better or do you think that would have been too much of a supernatural ripoff and people would have hated it you know and do you have any suggestions of what could have been done to make you enjoy the mixy story arc even more yeah i liked it nico but i didn't love it like you i desired a more trickster like episode of Supergirl this week, but I guess we had too, too high of expectations for this episode. I would have absolutely loved your idea for this episode, though, to have been the case, and that would have been fantastic. And I'm suddenly very disappointed that that is not the episode we got. I wonder if this episode had played with reality even more. Maybe Mixie bringing Kara and Monel to a resurrected Krypton, maybe making Monel fight other aliens, maybe something else. I don't know. I don't know if that would have made it more interesting or not. But I think one of the things, too, that made us enjoy the Supernatural episode of Mystery Spot in particular so much, which you seem to have been taking plot points from in your idea is that the trickster himself was kind of the mystery and while you couldn't have really done that with Mixie because of the way that last week's episode ended I also think it would have been possible if he had taken a backseat and strange things had still been happening kind of like the parasite showing up which we'll talk about I'm sure later and then Monel trying to discern for himself and figure out okay what is actually going on here that could have been interesting too but I don't know yeah you know I I know what you mean because I'm not sure 
exactly what it was missing, but it was definitely missing something to give it that oomph, give it that specialness, something Mm -hmm. that we were looking for and thought was possible when they introduced a fifth dimensional or trickster-like character last week. But as I said, despite my complaints that this week's episode and the Mixie story art didn't really live up to my hopes for the episode, it was very well done and worked well within the season-long arcs, the story they are trying to tell, and the character arcs in general. Unfortunately, it was the only thing that I liked about the episode. The rest was the same thing I've been complaining about for the last few weeks, the high school-level romance drama. The jealousy and immaturity of the Monel and Kara relationship was unbearable, and really, the immaturity of all the relationships on the series has become a major drawback for my enjoyment. I mean, the Alex and Maggie Valentine's issue made it seem like neither of them has ever been in a relationship ever, gay or straight. The added backstory of Maggie's being outed by a former friend and being kicked out of her house for being gay as a child had potential for character development, yet it was squandered on the adult prom wrap-up at the end of the episode. Why does the CW think that their viewers all wish they had an adult prom to make up for how horrible their prom was in high school? Is this because most of the writers had horrible high school dating experiences and are using this as to cathartically exercise those demons on their TV show now? I had a pretty typical high school experience, some good and plenty of terrible. It goes with the age group, the hormones and stress of getting into or trying to get into a top 20 university and hormones. Oh, did I mention hormones? Because they make you do stupid things. But I don't go around in my adult life looking for ways to recreate the experiences I missed out on in high school. Anyway, like I said, that backstory would have made for interesting character development with Maggie, and maybe it still will. NPR's This American Life on Sunday did an entire episode on grand gestures and how they are born out of an immature view on love and are reinforced by romantic comedies, novels, and television. And that is exactly what this episode felt like to me, a bunch of grand gestures that expose the immaturity of the relationships on this episode. It is rapidly becoming evident that I am no longer the target audience of this series, and that is disappointing. I understand that Supergirl is a female hero and should be someone for little girls to look up to and aspire to be, but why does that preclude her from being a hero for everyone and the series having age-appropriate relationships? It shouldn't, and that is what disappoints me about this series and what this series seems to be since moving to the CW and shifting focus from younger girls to tweens and high schoolers and adding these immature relationships that feel like they are ripped out of the diary of a high school girl. Michael, I know this has been quite a rant on my part, but do you have anything to add or dispute with what I said? Definitely not, Nico. I completely agree, and I'm not really sure there's much I can add at this point. I mean, this has been a problem that CW has had in general, but Supergirl seems to get the worst of it at this point since being moved to this network. I never felt this negative about a TV series, especially a superhero and comic book TV series, before this season of Supergirl in my life. I mean, to me, it seems like everything I liked and loved about season one of Supergirl has been completely taken and corrupted by this season, and the constant relationship drama has not helped. The sexual tension between Alex and Maxwell Lord last season worked great and kept us interested and was age-appropriate, while the relationship between James and Kara that was built up and then taken away at the beginning of this season was exciting. But now every single character not only has has to have a love interest, but because of it, they don't quite act like the characters that we know and love. In fact, they're starting to display personality traits, apparently hidden personality traits, that I wouldn't have even thought they had last season. And that's just my thought on it. Yeah, exactly. We've said it a few times now that this season feels like a completely different series than what we got last season. Much of the heart of season one was a direct result 
result of the Cat Grant and Kara interactions and relationship and mentorship, which is sorely missed this season. Snapper Car has had moments of mentorship for Kara that have been good, but it has been a sore excuse for replacing what was lost when Callista Flockhart left the series. And that is no fault of Ian Gomez, merely the writers not knowing how to use him and the Kara story arc properly, as, at least that's my opinion. Anyway, Michael, I think you're spot on that it is all the relationship drama and seemingly loss of focus on the characters, many even becoming completely new characters this season, like you mentioned, that has harmed and sucked a lot of the of my enjoyment of this series this season. But anyway, going back to my idea that Supergirl could have used a page out of the Supernatural's playbook idea, I think part of what made the mystery spot work was that Sam had to continually convince Dean what was going on and learn from his previous mistakes, which ultimately resulted in Dean's death in that episode over and over and over again. This would have worked with this episode because each time Monel would have had to convince Kara that she was she had already lived this day before, rebuffed Mixie's proposals, and had to figure out a way to break the time loop. Since I complained so much about the jealousy issue and how the writers seemed to want to make that a part of the Kara and Monel relationship, they still could have incorporated that aspect, despite my objections to it, into this time loop idea as well. So they wouldn't even have had to lose that aspect of the, the episode because Monel could have initially been jealous, shown his jealousy in his attempts to break the time loop, and do any number of things he actually did in this episode, like even challenging Mixie to a duel. But over time and repetitions, he could have learned about Kara so he could convince her that they were in a time loop more easily each time, bettered himself, stopped being jealous, overbearing, misogynistic, etc., and helped everyone's day turn out better so that in the end they could defeat Mixie. Essentially, Supergirl could have and should have pulled a Groundhog's Day with Monel, where he had to repeat the day over and over and over again until he and Kara got it perfect and de- defeated Mixie. That is how this episode could have worked for me and kept the relationship crap in there too. What do you think, Michael? Would this have worked better? Man, Nico, why don't you just write for this show? I would have loved that. That would have made it a lot better on my for me and my enjoyment in this episode. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I really thought that that was a great opportunity and a great possibility. Yeah. But again, maybe they're thinking it's too derivative, too much of a ripoff of another story, and they don't want to get sucked into that that trap. Or quite but, frankly, they just didn't think of it. Or yeah, that, that's true as well. So it looks like Wynn and an alien hooked up in this episode. I won't harp on the immaturity of this relationship because, I mean, Wynn says he wants to take it slow and she mentions sex and, of course, they leave to go have sex again. But this at least has future potential. I thought maybe she was playing Wynn, going to turn out to be only interested in getting information out of him from the DEO, but now it looks like she might be a real character that is interested in him or a relationship that could lead to interesting alien-human relationship issues and progress big season-long story arcs. So that could be good. So what do you think, Michael? Is this win relationship real? Is it a fling or something else like a covert information gathering mission and she is just a spy that used Win as the weak link to infiltrate Supergirl in the DEO's inner circle? It could be real. It could be that she's a spy for the people searching for Monel. maybe. I'm not really sure, but the one thing I will say is that I hope that this relationship does not take away from Win's job at the DEO or his duties with James's Guardian because that could easily be something that the writers decide to fall into and allow Win to take time away from his duties and away from his job to be with this girl which could cause a lot more drama that we really don't need because he should be more mature than that but uh, alas like you <laughs> like you mentioned earlier he says he wants to take it slow 
slow, and then he immediately goes to have sex with her again. So right, we'll see. I, I do like your idea of her being involved in the hunt for Monel or being a spy for a group that's looking for him. That could be really interesting. But was there anything else worth discussing that I didn't mention? You know, I was honestly disappointed. James, the only character on the show right now without a love connection, wasn't in this episode. He not only would have been a breath of fresh air, but could have been possibly helpful against Mixie. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. I missed James as well in this episode. Okay, I think that's enough about Supergirl. We can move on to an episode we enjoyed infinitely more this week with this week's episode of Flash entitled Attack on Gorilla City. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. Barry and his team travel to Earth 2 to rescue Harry from Gorilla City, but are captured and brought to Grodd, who tells them he needs to, their help to stop Solovar, the leader of Gorilla City, from invading Earth 1. Meanwhile, back on Earth 1, Jesse and Kid Flash hit the streets to stop a metahuman who can control gravity. So Michael, Dan and I really enjoyed the first two appearances of Grodd on the series and felt like each time the CGI gorillas have gotten better than the last, and they were pretty damn good to start with for a TV budget, so that's that's a pretty good thing as we go forward with this series. Of course, they'll never be able to compete with the CG monkeys and apes from the Planet of the Apes film series, but just the fact that they would even attempt something that labor and computer graphic intense is worth praise for this series. Plus, these episodes have been great story-wise because the cast plays the Grodd story arc, one of the most endearing tropes of the DC Silver Age. They play it straight. That the script and cast play Grodd's episodes completely straight, much less make them involving and amazing stories that fit so well into the series is brilliant, especially when they could so easily descend into campy farce, is what makes me love those episodes so much. Michael, many of the stories coming from the Silver Age can be at times ridiculously campy and farce-worthy. How does the Flash series take a super intelligent gorilla villain, and in this case Gorilla City, and make it work? Well, I think they make it work based on the laws that they've already created for this universe. You know, when the particle accelerator blew, it was explained that dark matter was thrown throughout all throughout Central city and thus created metahumans but it was also explained back in season one that animals could be affected too especially ones that were already genetically modified by man specifically a barthon in this case allowing it to take place and allowing grod to become a meta animal a meta ape Obviously, that's why the story works story-wise, but in terms of why it works on television and on The Flash specifically, I think it's simply because of what you've already mentioned, Nico. The cast and crew take it seriously. If they didn't spend the money on CGI effects, if they didn't write smart and coherent stories and dialogue, and if the cast didn't deliver their lines with a straight face, then it would not have worked at all. Thankfully, the cast and crew of The Flash are all professionals, and that translates extremely well onto TV screen. Yeah, you know, I, I like that sometimes they make fun of the tropes of the comic genre and they kind of make fun and and, yeah. and talk about how ridiculous some of this stuff is and then at other times they can do this like what they've done with Grodd in Gorilla City where if they were making fun of it it wouldn't work but because like you and I have both now said they play it straight it completely works within the story so I, I think you're absolutely right Michael that that is probably the key to why this story seems to work so well in this series now you had mentioned a few weeks ago that of all the story arcs previewed with the headlines from the future that the Grodd story arcs were the ones that you were most looking forward to, especially a potential trip to Gorilla City. So how did it live up to the hype for you? Because I'm of two minds here. What we got was great. The battle with Solovar was intense. The manipulation 
Mountain Bike Rod was a little overly obvious, but only because we know him from the comics so well, and the CG for the gorillas was amazing for a network television show. But this chapter of Grodd's story, Attack on Grill City, true to its title, introduced an entire city of talking muscle-bound gorillas. Sure, most of them are present only in CG establishing shots, with Solovar being the only really new character introduced, but still, it was pretty great. And veteran character actor Keith David lends his finely weathered voice to the ape ruler, and he comes off every bit as creepy as Grodd, but that is perhaps only because we're less familiar with him and his motives. However, at the same time, I was disappointed because I wanted more from Gorilla City. I wanted more exploration of the city, a better understanding of the city and cultural structure, just more time in the city. Now, this probably could have been done by having Team Flash not get captured immediately and rather explore and sneak through the city and get a feel for the city, but that didn't fit with the story they were telling. So, Michael, did the episode live up to the hype we gave it? And what did you like about the Gorilla City stuff and what could have been done better? Yeah, this is definitely the story I was most excited for. And honestly, I still am as part two of this Gorilla arc airs next week. So I'm pumped about that. But I was also very happy with how The Flash did Gorilla City this week. I knew better than to expect something like the Justice League animated series version of the city and Solovar. So my expectations ended up being met ultimately. I don't disagree with you, Nico, when you say that you wish we explored the culture in the city itself more because I think that'd be awesome. But I think ultimately with the story that they were telling, it seemed like this, the way they did it was the best way to do it. As for how Solovar was portrayed, I agree. Obviously, we knew who the character was and thus could figure out Grodd's intentions pretty early on, but I doubt that the normal audience felt that same way. In fact, I would be surprised if we didn't see Solovar again either next week or next season to help Barry and Team Flash defeat Grodd and maybe even make a pact of peace between humans and gorilla kind, but we'll get into that in a moment. Yeah, exactly, Michael, because traditionally in the comics, Solovar and Barry are friends and respect each other, stemming from the Flash helping to stop Grodd many times, and Barry treating Solovar as an equal and friend. Actually, I see this as where the story is probably going, going forward. In this episode, the Flash and Solovar were manipulated into being enemies, but after Barry spared Solovar's life, I believe he will respect Barry slash the Flash and seek to repair relations with the humans after next week's guerrilla invasion of Central City on Earth-1, and probably be instrumental in helping Team Flash actually stop Grodd and his army of guerrillas. Definitely. I think a peace treaty will certainly be in the works, and with Harry having to return to Earth-2 eventually, I'm sure he'll end up even heading those negotiations. Yeah, that, that's that's a pretty good bet. Now, it seems like this episode cheated a little by having Grodd take over the mind of primarily Harry Wells, but also Solovar with Cisco to communicate through the show's human characters. So, Michael, what did you think of this? Was the this necessary when they have the ability to talk telepathically? Was it just to get everyone involved in the scene from an actor's stance? Uh, what was the purpose of this, and did it work story-wise? Yeah, this was interesting. You know, I wasn't necessarily opposed to it, but I agree. We were definitely cheated out of more guerrilla action because of it, which they may be saving for next week, so there may be an actual budgetary reason for that. Now, to be fair, as Grodd's powers are increasing and developing, he always seems to be stronger and more powerful every time we see him on the show. So taking over human minds would most certainly be the next logical step, and even that is something he could have easily learned from those at Gorilla City, which would be why Solovar also does it. Yeah, I didn't think of it in that term. So by showing Grodd and Solovar able to take over human minds and talk through them, it does show how much their power and abilities have progressed and just how strong and powerful they are. So that's a good point. It shows us how much they, how much Grodd has improved or has grown since the last time we've seen him in his power. Now, 
the emotional heart of this episode was probably meant to be Wally and Jesse, but their romance drama was more annoying than even some of, but not all of, the Supergirl romance drama this week. Essentially, Jesse believes Wally's new powers have caused him to lose interest in her and thinks her own powers were the only thing that attracted him to her in the first place, his literal love of speed. She seemed to feel she's no greater value to the guy she professes to love than a sports car. This was neatly wrapped up by the end of the episode, however, and Jesse seemingly, at least for now, has decided to move to Earth-1. However, it is, in my opinion, Julian's story arc this week that really captured my attention. He gallantly dons his... Now, the episode joked it was Indiana Jones, but I'd say it was more like Atari's Pitfall Harry attire, and joins the mission to Earth-2 in a secret attempt to protect Caitlin from herself, lest Gorilla City should somehow cause her to release Killer Frost again. Fun fact, when Julian and said, where are we going? Are we going to the Planet of the Apes? This was actually a reference to the fact that Tom Felton appeared in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I love when this show pokes fun at themselves or at little coincidences like this. That's what really gets me sometimes. Anyway, back to this episode. Much like Kara and Monel, as soon as Julian and Caitlin have fully fallen for each other, I'm starting to expect the other shoe to drop. Be it Ronnie's return, her becoming Killer Frost, or Savitar returning and somehow corrupting Julian, something is going to keep these crazy kids apart. Come on, it's the CW after all. <laughs> anyway, Michael, what did you think of the two relationship arcs this week, and what about Julian's inclusion in the team excursion to Earth 2? Yeah, I'm liking the way the Julian Caitlin arc is going as well. I thought that this week played that very well. Anyway, I love Julian's addition to the excursion to Earth 2 this week, and seeing him continue to work with Team Flash in the future is something that I'm definitely looking forward to. As for the Wally and Jesse stuff, I'm kind of just sick of the Wally drama in general, <laughs> so it will I wasn't a huge fan, but I was glad to see that Jesse decided to stay on Earth-1, at least for now. Hopefully it'll work out between the two of them, but I'm also not sure. I'm also kind of a comic book purist, so part of me hopes that Wally will somehow get together with Linda Park, but Okay, we'll see. yeah. <laughs> Anything I missed worth mentioning? Nope, I'm just really excited to see the attack at Central City this week. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. All right, if that's enough of Flash, then I think it's time to move on to Arrow. And we'll talk about a very aptly named episode entitled The Sin Eater. China White, Cupid, and Lisa Warner break out of Iron Heights and head to Star City for revenge. Oliver tries to bring in the newly formed girl gang, but the ACU intervenes mid-fight. To his surprise, they are there to arrest the Green Arrow for the murder of Detective Malone. Meanwhile, Lance feels responsible for the prison break after Warner tells him she heard about him working with Damian Dark. Now, this week on Arrow was pretty packed in terms of action, excitement, and character development. We started off seeing China White, Cupid, and Liza Warner escape from confinement to get to Tobias Church's hidden stack so they can take back Starling City, or Star City, I guess. This includes them killing basically all of the Triad, as well as most of the Bertinellis. I know this wasn't really the main focus of this week's episode, Nico, and I was glad that that was the case, but I was actually happy to see both Cupid and China White back this the week, especially since it's been since the Hong Kong flashbacks in Season 3, since we've seen China White. So that was a nice surprise. Nico, what were your thoughts on this evil girl power trio? And could we see them return anytime soon? Clearly they weren't the real focus this week, but do you think they added to the drama? 
Chong? China White was obviously shot by Captain Pike at the end of the episode, but is she dead? You know, my guess is that she's not dead. She's too much of an important Oliver Queen Green Arrow villain from Longbow Hunters and Year One comics to to be taken out by anyone other than Oliver himself, in my opinion, anyway. But as for the trio as a whole in this episode, much like you said, they really were not the focus of the episode, and I think that actually worked well. I'm not a Cupid fan, and I think if they had focused on Captain Lance and Warner as a single episode entire episode story arc it would have dragged so combining them all into this episode and all the other stuff going on helped bring some focus to the episode while keeping it jam-packed with action character development across the board and story progression i'm not sure how soon we'll see any of these or all of these women villains back on the series or if we need any more from cupid or warren but china white should be back at least one more time before the series is over because i think oliver needs to eventually take her down again i completely agree especially with how important she was in the first well the first season but also even season two and the flashbacks in season three yep now one of the moments this week one of the big moments this week was when susan confronted oliver about being the green arrow not only did i not expect this to occur so early at at least in my opinion at this point in the season but i also didn't expect what came next theo with some basic tech support by felicity essentially blew up susan's life and by destroying her career and discrediting her to the point of no one being able to believe her that oliver is the green arrow watching the episode this week i honestly didn't expect it to go down this way i was still kind of under the impression that susan was just using her relationship to get close to oliver to uncover his secret which she was but to find out that she was heartbroken because she thought that oliver had something to do with ruining her life that was really rough to watch especially the scene between the two of them when she's in tears i may not like susan williams very much but i couldn't help but feel sorry for her and side with oliver against thea nico what did you think of this thea's destroying susan's life in this way felt almost like a Malcolm Merlin or Moira Queen move. Is Thea finally proving herself to be their daughter in more ways than just in blood? Also, what do you think Susan will do now? Will she still release all the information on Oliver Queen being the Green Arrow? Yeah, Michael, this was brutal this week. As you said, we might not like the Susan Williams character, but seeing her life destroyed like this was tough and you had to feel for her. This sort of reminds me of what a lot of people do to people online nowadays. For instance, you may see a person make a joke online and then the politically correct social justice warriors will take it upon themselves to ruin that person's life and get them fired, publicly shamed, and ruin their careers because the social justice warrior either doesn't like what was said or takes offense to it, either real offense or mock offense, and it doesn't seem to matter in those cases. They just ruin the person's life. I hate this aspect of our current online society, and this felt very much like Thea and Felicity did exactly that to Susan Williams. Probably not surprisingly with how much I don't like Felicity these days, but I actually initially thought this was Felicity taking it too far and ruining her career as part of her darker story arc aspect. But with Oliver confronting and the story focusing so much on Thea this week, I guess I was probably wrong about that. But in reality, it might have been Thea's idea initially, but Felicity is the one who actually did it. And Oliver seemed to give her a complete pass on this. I wonder why that was when he was so hard on Thea. Regardless, this bad move on Thea and Felicity's part will cause way more harm than help because it will turn Susan Williams into an enemy instead of just a hungry reporter looking for a story and she will be leading the charge to take down Oliver now as the mayor now that his cover-up has been exposed and it leads more credibility to her claims and story. I can see her now being the most ardent investigator, his most damning detractor, all because Thea and Felicity framed her, made it look like she plagiarized her previous work, and tried to ruin her career. This is going to end up doing 
doing more harm than her digging into the Green Arrow stuff. Absolutely. And like what we mentioned, she thinks at this point that Oliver is the one behind it. So she right. she doesn't even know she doesn't even know Felicity really exists, probably, at least to a point. And she probably wouldn't expect Thea either. So she's thinking at this point, it's definitely Oliver who's been against her. And so of course she's going to do anything she can at this point to get back at him. More than just this revelation came up this week though, as Prometheus in retaliation for Oliver visiting his mother in Opal City, who refused to give her son's name up, released information both to the police and then later to the media about the cover-up of Billy Malone's death and the Emerald Archer's involvement in it. This caused the ACU to come after the Green Arrow hard, and although it seems as if Captain Pike is going to get off the Green Arrow's back, now the media is going to jump on Mayor Queens. This proves once again that Prometheus isn't just satisfied going after Oliver in the hood, but also Oliver in his own personal and political life. Nico, what do you think is going to happen next? Could this all lead into my fall of the Green Arrow theory that I pushed a few weeks ago, or does Prometheus have a different plan altogether? Will the ACU go after the Green Arrow again in light of these accusations against the mayor, or is it strictly going to be now the media? going after Oliver Queen. Yeah, I don't see the ACU going after the Green Arrow or only going after him in the media or, you know, for show and not really in the streets because the mayor and Green Arrow were up front with the ACU and explained all of this to Captain Pike this week and they decided that the true enemy was Prometheus and that the Green Arrow is not and was not a cop killer and that Prometheus set him up. Thus, nothing has changed with the revelation that the mayor covered this fact up because the ACU already knew that. So I don't see them all of a sudden making a change in tactics because this is now exposed because they already knew about it. But the fall of the Green Arrow story arc does still seem the most likely story arc for the way I think this all plays out. And I really like that idea, Michael. I think my twist that Oliver ultimately is forced to reveal himself as part of that, that story will also factor in as well. As I said earlier, I think on the political and mayoral front, Susan Williams will be at the lead, charging ahead to expose Oliver because she believes that he was involved in her being hacked, like you mentioned. So absolutely, I think that's where everything's going to go in the next couple weeks. Now, how much do you think she's actually going to be able to lead the charge, though, now that she's been apparently discredited? I think that she's going to be able to convince her office that she was working on a Mayor Queen story and he sabotaged her and everything up to her this point, her life had shown that she was honorable. And I think she's going to be able to look, he covered this up. Why do you not believe that he would attack me and frame me? You know, and I think she's going to get her job back. That is definitely possible. Now, we got more of Dinah Drake this week as well, as she was officially sworn into office as an SCPD officer. Not only that, she's also well on her way to becoming the new Black Canary, even to the point of putting on Laurel's Black Canary mask. I'm really excited to continue to see Dinah in action in her new vigilante persona, even though she hasn't been the primary focus lately, which I think actually has been good. In fact, one of my favorite scenes this week was the one between her and Quentin when he told her that Laurel didn't want someone to replace her, but someone to fight in her place. Nico, I'm really enjoying Dinah's evolution into the new canary but what are your thoughts on her progression this week is she starting to fill into laurel shoes finally or does she still have quite a way to go you know i agree michael and i love the idea and focus on her not replacing laurel as the black canary because really nobody could but it is more like what we see in the comics when someone dies or retires a new black canary takes over the mantle and continues fighting in her 
place. She's not replacing Laurel or trying to make it seem like the Black Canary never left, which is another type of comic story like when Bane broke Batman's back and Bruce was incapacitated and Dick Grayson slash Nightwing took over as Batman to keep Gotham safe while Bruce recovered and also keep his secret identity safe. This is not replacement duty to keep that secret identity safe in this case. This is continuing the mission of Laurel with Dinah keeping the Black Canary and everything Laurel fought for alive by stepping in and taking up the mantle. I like what they are doing and I think it it was important for Lance to sign off on the transition, which he did very well in this episode. I I love that scene. I think this is one aspect of the series where the writers are actually nailing it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think part of what makes this work very well is that it's not the primary focus. They're not making it the primary focus of the rest of the season. Oliver is still very clearly in focus. Him and his role as the Green Arrow, but also his role as a mayor. And Dinah's story into becoming the Black Canary is still very B-plot. And even B-plot in the sense of it's even maybe less important to the overall story than Laurel's initial training to become Black Canary was. Which I think works very well. And it also puts takes a lot of pressure off of her and puts it back on the main story, thus allowing us to enjoy this story more. Now, the last big thing we saw this week was Oliver and Anatoly fighting the Bratva in order to survive and start their coup against Kovar. Although we didn't get a lot from the flashbacks this week, other than Anatoly's comment about Oliver being like the Sin Eater, taking on other people's sins and burdens for himself, we're kind of hanging on the edge in terms of where the story's going next. Nico, did you have any further thoughts on the flashbacks this week or this episode in general? You know, I like the flashbacks this week and I'm actually looking forward to see how they get out of the garage and possibly seeing more Talia al Ghul in the coming weeks as well. Those are things I'm really looking forward to in the flashback aspect. Now, the concept of the Sin Eater is an interesting one that does not always fit with the Catholic Church's teachings, but is interesting nonetheless. My first introduction to this concept was in a comparative religions course in college and a lecture that discussed myth and legend and how many of them spawned from official church teachings and others did not. And a film with Heath Ledger in it called The Order, which came out in 2003, shortly after or around the time I took that course at Notre Dame, focuses on Heath Ledger as a priest and the ideas surrounding the concept of Sin Eaters, and it was really an interesting film. Uh, At least when I saw it, it was really interesting. I don't know if it still holds up, but I really enjoyed it at the time. Anyway, the fact that Anatoly used that term to describe Oliver was perfectly suited to who and what Oliver has become. He takes the mistakes and problems of his family, his entire team, and even his entire city and takes them on as his own. That is like the Sin Eaters of legend who would consume the sins of others and pawn their souls for the purity of those that had passed. Much like that, Oliver pawns his own happiness and life for the happiness and safeties of others. I thought it was an excellent title for this week's episode and a perfect metaphor for Oliver's life in general. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Now, that being said, if we don't have anything else to say about this week's episode of Arrow, let's move on to DC's Legends of Tomorrow with the second season, episode 12, entitled Camelot 3000. The legends travel to King Arthur's Camelot and join forces with the Knights of the Round Table to protect a shard of the Spear of Destiny from the now evil Rippunner. This week's Legends takes us both to the year 3000 as well as to medieval Camelot. Two very distinct and very different time periods. Although I wish we had spent more time in the future than the past, and maybe that's coming later, I thought the backstory of the JSA's final mission with Rippunner, the Time Master Rippunner, I might add, was interesting, and a mission that I hope we get to see more of this season on 
some level. Granted, we only have about four episodes left, so we'll see what we get. Not only did Rip take part of the Spear Destiny, but so did Dr. Midnight and Stargirl, each going to different periods in time to keep pieces hidden. Nico, did this work for you? Do you want to see more from the JSA's final mission? And do you think Obsidian could have hidden a piece as well? Yes, and yes, and yes. I I thought it was an inspired idea to bring this season full circle back to the JSA, where everything started way back 12 episodes ago. I agree that it would have been fun to spend some more time in the future this week, and the whole year 3000 and Dr. Midnight's story was entirely too short, but I enjoyed the trip to Camelot this week. I think after we see where each piece of the spear ended up in their own episodes, it would be fun to have an extended flashback to the JSA's final mission to see it in its entirety and possibly see Rip drop each member of the JSA off in their individual time. This is such a cool concept that I'm slightly disappointed that it was not an entire episode in itself. It would have been fun to see a DC Legends episode that did not feature the Legends and rather showed the setup for the season with the JSA starring in the episode and the Legends only showing up at the end or in little snippets to the future. Now as for your thoughts on Obsidian, I think he was guarding his part of the mission when we saw him. He was guarding the piece of the amulet that they found at the location that ultimately would be used to find the location of the spear fragments. He either didn't remember or was not informed of what he was actually guarding or he just didn't tell everybody because it was too important of a mission. So I still think it fits into this story but I think we'll actually see the last spear fragment being guarded by Nate's grandfather Commander Steele and he won't actually have died in Nazi Germany but was actually sent off in time to keep the spares safe and that was hidden from his family to once again keep it safe. That's definitely an interesting concept and I like that quite a bit. It would be a great way to see Steele maybe even fight alongside his grandfather first time since he's actually got his powers which could be a very cool thing well. Yeah absolutely. With us primarily being in Camelot this week I was wondering Nico how did you like it? I thought Camelot was very well done especially for the CW but I guess they do that show Rain so it makes sense that they would know how to do this and while I didn't enjoy it as much as Gorilla City on the Flash this week it was definitely a new and exciting location to explore. Do you have any specific thoughts on Camelot, King Arthur or Stargirl as Merlin? You know I liked it and the idea that Stargirl used her powers and the spear to create Camelot a legendary and not historical place was fun. Uh, A fun way to really play around in the past without major consequences. I have found that if you get past the blatant disregard for history on this show and the consequences of the legend's actions in historical settings, this series gets entirely more fun to watch. If you are consistently worried about what they're screwing up in the future, you get less enjoyment out of a knight who has a a saber of light, but not a lightsaber because there are major trademark issues there, which was a fun callback again to the George Lucas episode a few weeks ago as well. Overall, I enjoyed the Camelot story arc this week, and I I had fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of that lightsaber, because that thing was the best, Ray seemed to be the heavy focus of the episode this week, as he was stoked about being in Camelot, meeting his heroes, and being knighted. He was almost as excited, if not more excited, this week than he was when he got to meet George Lucas, although I guess he was kind of forgetting all about that at the time. Now, we saw him fight in battle, meet Galahad, even take on Damien Dark one-on-one, which is a battle he never should have walked away from to be honest but whatever i'm gonna just let it go and be happy that he had a lightsaber which again was awesome but there were times in this episode where i admired ray's desire to honor the child he once was but there were other times where i was completely on nate's side and wondering what was getting into the atom nico did you feel the same way i mean and what i mean is did ray feel off to you this week as a character almost too childlike in the way that seemed too reckless also why don't we see firestorm steel vixen and the atom use their powers and technology 
technology more, especially in a time period of history where there would be no consequences to that. I feel like every week I wait for some awesome superpowered fight scenes, but I'm continually disappointed by that. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I was actually squarely on the side of Ray in this episode. And the reason for that is I looked at it this week as these were the stories and heroes that shaped Ray into the man he had become. The man who spent millions of his own dollars developing the atom suit, mining the dwarf star material to create it. And the man that decided that he could be a superhero. If you take away those legends from his childhood, he never becomes the man he is today. Looking at it like that, if he turned his back on this fight, if he ran when the heroes of his childhood needed him, how could he ever remain the man he has become? Would he not lose that part of him that makes him a hero? Sure, the smart thing was to run with this piece of the spear, and I'm sure he figured that that was what the team would do, but he could not run. He could not abandon Camelot. It and its ideals were in entirely too important to him to run away from and and not stand with the other knights and defend. That is what a hero does. He stands and defends when others cannot. I actually really admired that about Rey in this episode. Even if it was not the tactically smart move, which is what the rest of the team realized as well, but it was the move that the hero had to make. Now, as for why the heroes are not using their powers, that's something I don't understand as well. I suppose in this week's case, it would have made them entirely too overpowered as they were going up against essentially human knights that were under the influence of the Legion and maybe they didn't want to kill them if they didn't have to but overall there has seemingly been a major lack of superpowers and superpowered fights this season which has been a disappointment especially since everyone on the team now has their powers suit or gun besides Sarah and she's a League of Assassins trained ninja so that's like a superpower in and of itself I mean I can't even remember the last time I saw Firestorm actually become Firestorm I've been disappointed as well, Michael, and thought that with the reverse Flash being so focal to this season that we'd at least see everyone go up against him more frequently. But so far, he's whipped everyone's ass every time he's shown up. So I'm I'm not exactly sure about that. I don't know. Maybe they are saving it all for the finale, but last season had way more superpowers or at least more big fights and half the team wasn't powered at that time. Right. And they traveled into the future at that time to the vanishing point and there was a lot of exciting scientific or science fiction technology use as well, yep. but not getting as much of that, which is kind of a disappointment. But anyway, as it turns out, while Firestorm was coming to a solution for defeating Evil Rip and Damien's Big Bad Army, Heat Wave ended up being the key. That is, Mick's own memories and brain power could short circuit the mind control device and take down the army, saving King Arthur and the rest of the legends. And while I thought this was humorous and an interesting way to solve the problem, did this seem a little bit too convenient to you, Nico, given how vital Mick was to George Washington last episode? Is Mick becoming too much of a token character and taking away the jobs of other characters like Stein this week? Or am I just reading too much into that? You know, I don't think you're wrong, Michael. It definitely seemed too convenient of a fix, but I think it was solely used for comedic relief effect. The fact that the dumb as rocks guy has more brain power in this case and better able to control or rather overload the neural link was just a cheap laugh at Stein's expense. I think the fact that they are focusing on Mick so much in the last few episodes is because for much of the first half of the season, he was sort of just a passenger in most episodes. And now they are attempting, and in some cases like last week, succeeding in bringing more 
focus and depth to his character. I like the Heatwave character and how he still thinks like a villain, but is slowly becoming almost a hero as well. So I'm all right with them making him a bigger focus or occasionally the comedic relief that just happens to save the day if it means he sticks around on the team. Yeah, I agree with that. The only thing I'm a little worried about, I guess, is that they've be- because they've been focusing on him so much, like they did with Snart last season, could he be could he be the next legend to go? Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of, finally, Evil Rip has now been captured by the legends and is being held on the Wave Rider. Watching the final scene between Rip and Jax felt really wrong to me, Nico. It felt like after everything the legends had been through, especially last season, Jax was way too willing to give up on his former friend and cap. If Sarah had been turned evil by this week's mind control device, or any mind control device by the Le- that the Legion could have enacted in her, the team would not have hesitated one bit in going in to save her. In fact, Jax would have been the most vocal proponent of it. But for whatever reason, no one seems to be on Rip's side. No one seems to be fighting for his redemption or his true return. And although I still think like Evil Carter took back the Hawkman mantle last year, Rip will return to being a Time Master, specifically the one we know and love, I still wonder if the Legends will be willing to welcome him back, even though this evil Rip is really not the captain that they knew and loved at all. Nico, what are your thoughts on this? Was Jax in the right at the end of this week, or did this feel odd and completely wrong to you as well? Well, I'm 100% with you on the whole Jax scene feeling wrong and being wrong for this series. One of the main focuses of this entire season has been about the Legends becoming a team and a family, and how that has made them better and a better team. While Rip was not, he hasn't been there for most or all of this development, he was the one who found each of the original members of the team and invited them to become the Legends. The fact that they would turn on him and not try to save him, turn him back to who he was, that seems wholly wrong and out of character for the whole team. Luckily, I think that now that we have Rip on the Wave Rider, he will have one more evil episode where he attempts to escape, hijack the ship, or attempt to kill or strand everyone in time, and in the process of saving themselves and fixing the Wave Rider, they will somehow heal or fix Rip as well, and he may even somehow overcome his own reprogramming that Thawne did to him and become the Rip we know and love. Somehow, I think he's going to be back to who he was by the end of the next episode. I can't see it going much more than the next episode, or maybe on the outside chance into the one after that before he's back to himself. But then we'll have the battle of who is the actual captain of the ship and which team members back which captain, which could make for an interesting story in two episodes or three episodes. But to get back to your question, Jax was completely wrong at the end of this episode, and I didn't like it. Oh, I don't wait. I hope we don't have to have a civil war on the on the <laughs> wave rider between the two captains. That'll just because I know they'll end up picking Sarah and it'll just piss me off. But whatever. Anyway, do you have any other thoughts on this week's Legends Zika? Not really. I will say again, I did enjoy visiting a legendary time as opposed to a realistic medieval times. But yeah, other than that, I really enjoyed the Camelot stuff this week. Absolutely. All right. With that, I think it's about time we go into the closing and talk about what we'll talk about next week. On next week's episode, we continue our reviews of the spring 2017 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, but no DC Legends of Tomorrow as it's going to take a week off and Gotham is still on its ridiculously long spring hiatus until late April, so that won't be there either. But make sure to join us for all of our shows that are actually airing next week. But for now and for most of the season, we're going to roll dance pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes store, get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. 
We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airwaves, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, on the mixed radio station code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio. Or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace. Got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle. Got Google Plus. Go leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Could get it 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you are sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukim, Joshua Mercray, James Hafel, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reifstone. And I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airway. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya!
lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.